Thank you to our worship team. These guys are always awesome. Appreciate it. Well, good morning, everybody. I think we have to say goodbye to our, our junior hires. Maddie, it's good to see you. It's good to see everybody. Well, this morning, um, we're going to be back in the Gospel of John just for a moment. And then, as Pastor Andy already mentioned, we have uh, the opportunity. Georgiana, it's really good to see you. Yeah. Um, we have the opportunity to, to hear from Haley Wilson. And for some of you who watched the, or listened to the podcast, you know who she is. I'll introduce her in just a moment. Um, but as I was thinking about the time with Haley and the, the message, I, I thought, well, how do we do both? And so I just wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to John 7. And chances are um, we'll, we'll probably pick up a lot of this next week. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts started and give you a couple of the ideas that come out that are, I think, really relevant to this moment. Um, this moment being that it's not summer anymore. Like, this moment being that it's literally Christmas, right? Isn't it crazy? And I know we say this all the time, but right around, like, October, things just go, like, dominoes, and it's like the new year, and we're planning for summer again, right? That, like, this rapid motion, this rapid uh, experience that we have called life and especially surrounding the holidays, um, Christmas time, there's so many things that we hold in tension, right? We hold the, like the wonder of Jesus' birth and also the, oh no, I'm going to see uncle so-and-so, right? Like we have like this tension that we hold together. We're thinking like, I can't wait to get to that family gathering. And it's like, oh yeah, that family gathering is coming up. And so there's a little bit in here, like this little glimpse of, um, of an insight into the fact that Jesus gets us, right? That he knows it all because he experienced it all. And, um, and so I just want to um, just read this first couple of verses and then um, and share this one little part. And then maybe we'll circle back around. It sound like a plan? Yes. All right, here we go. John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went about Galilee. And the this is a whole list of things that he had done prior to this moment, right? Context is important. You remember um, starting around John chapter 5, everything changed when Jesus decided to heal somebody on the Sabbath, right? Do you remember this? If you don't, just fake it because um, no one's going to check you on it. But, but, but what Jesus did on, um, for the man at the pool of Bethsaida on, on the Sabbath, he made him, him whole. He released him. Like the song that we just sang, he, he did a miracle for him. And that brought such a stir in the religious community that Jesus did that on the Sabbath that it changed the, the tone such, such that they wanted to, to kill him. You know, they were pursuing him rapidly. Jesus does an, a, another sign or a miracle of turning. Um, or he um, creates a multiplication miracle with the loaves and the fishes. Do you remember this one? Is it fish or fishes? I don't know. It was a bunch of fish. And, uh, and he, he does this for the people because he has compassion on this crowd who needed to eat. This crowd then pursues him. And we find that the crowd pursues him for, for motives that, um, that aren't because they want to worship the Messiah, but they want more bread. And he says, hey, I, don't, I didn't come to, to give you bread. I came to be the bread. And he, he declares himself as the I am. I am the bread of life. Do you remember this stuff? But we get this sense that, that, that things are pushing towards Jesus and it's getting dangerous that they want to make him king by force, that they want to kill him. And so there's like tension building. And so it's after all this, Jesus says these things, or we find himself at this part in this, ourselves at this part in the story. And it says, after this, Jesus went about Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. 
The Jews that are mentioned there are a direct reference to the, the, the ruling religious party, right? Not the common everyday person, because we'll see in just a moment the common everyday person wasn't sure that the, uh, the jury was still out. You know, they were, is this the Messiah? Or, uh, they were just trying to figure it out. Verse 2 says, now um, the Jews' feast of booth was, booths was at hand. And this is where I bring in like this moment that we're at in Christmas, because this is what hit me. The Feast of Booths is one of the three. Do you remember our Summer in the Psalm series? Just like fake it again. Yeah. Summer in the Psalm series. Um, we, we talked about these songs that were a playlist as the, um, the people of Israel would go into three key feasts that all males were required to go to. They would go up to Jerusalem. That's why it was an ascent. And one of those feasts is the Feast of Booths. And this is my, I think it's the coolest one. And what the Feast of Booths is, or, or, or the Feast of Tabernacles, these are translations to the Hebrew words that they would use, but, but these were a, an opportunity for eight days. Everybody goes up to Judea, it's the area surrounding Jerusalem, and they, they build tents out of um, branches and so forth. And there's some requirements to how they do it, actually. Um, you can learn from history, like one of them, for example, you would build this tent and then your family would camp in it for eight days. How many people like to camp? All right, how many times I have to glamp? Yeah, all right, just checking. So, so they would camp out, and, and this is, must have been especially cool for the children because they would, they would, one of the requirements was that the thatch on the roof needed to leave enough space so that they could lay in bed at night and look at the stars. Isn't that awesome? So you would imagine how like, this works out. One of the things we do, why we go through all the work of camping is because of what it does for family. Like You have these awesome experiences, and you, you're free of a lot of the, the things that are distractions around you. And so as they lay, would lay in bed at night, you would imagine that a child would go, hey, what are all, what's, what's that? Oh, these, look at these beautiful stars. And that would be opportunity for mom or dad to go, hey, you see, there was a time in our history where we were enslaved in Egypt. And we were freed. And out of that freedom, we spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, or whatever they would say. And, and God led us by a, a, a pillar, a cloud by night. And his glory was with us, and his faithfulness was there. When I look at those stars, it kind of reminds me of that. And what they were doing was depositing truth into their children in a natural way. Now, if you're a parent, this is part of your role as the key discipler in your child's life. Yeah, you, you, you come to Sunday school so that they, um, they get some great programming here or a Christian school or homeschool co-op, whatever it is that your decision is. But where they're really learning their faith and how to follow Jesus is by watching you and listening to the things that you say. Millie said it over and over again, more is caught than taught, right? It's a, something that I always remembered. And, um, and so this is an opportunity for these kids to catch something. And so the, the whole entire feast is, um, the first century historian Josephus said that this was like the most important and the most holy feast. And so it was a big deal. Now, now think of it, okay, so that's the, some of the significance of it, right? It's to remember that they lived in booths or these, these um, tents in the wilderness, and they were passing this truth on to their children, and they were showing them and teaching them about the faithfulness of God. That's what it was for. Now, can you imagine all the work that takes place to get everybody together to go for eight days and go camping with a bunch of other people? Anyone ever done it? You know, the, the Costco run that you have to do, the, um, the calming everybody's nerves, you know, how are we going to get there? Where are we going to sleep? Did you bring this? Like the tension beforehand. 
And so you can imagine some of that, not, not only that, but, but also when you go to the Feast of Booths, it's going to be a, a large gathering. You're going to reconnect with a lot of people. You're going to see that weird uncle. You know, you're going to, that was funny, right? That, that, okay, so. No, but you're going to see the, the family member or that person that you had conflict with or whatever else. So there's the tension that's building up there. And so as I was reading this, I, I thought about all of those things. And then I saw in verse three, it says, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. Note that these are his brothers talking. These are Jesus' family members. This isn't like brothers, like when you forget someone's name at church and you're like, hey, brother, it's not that. It's, it's like the people he grew up with, right? And so he says, he, so he says um, his brothers say to him, leave here and go to Judea with your disciples also so they may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then it says this sad statement in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed him. Interesting dynamic, right? That, that they grew up with him. And now he's, he's out preaching on the scene. And he's doing these great miracles. And then he's making a call. He's like, hey, I'm not, I'm not going. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be going to this one. And then they're sarcastically calling him out, saying, if you're so awesome, why are you hiding? Show the whole world who you are. It kind of sounds similar to what the enemy was doing to Jesus in, the, in, his, in his temptation, you know. And so, um, so then we, we read on in verse 6. And Jesus said to them, listen to this, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. For the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Nobody likes to hear the bad news, right? Verse 8 says, You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. And then verse 10 comes, and comes with controversy. But after this, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. I spent a lot of time on that. Because I, I like to ask questions when I read the Bible. Do you? And the question that I kept asking myself is, didn't Jesus just say he wasn't going to go? And then didn't he go? And isn't that called something? And isn't he perfect? And didn't he not ever sin? You ever think that way? Did you ever look at that? Well, I, I, I couldn't. Bill's like, nope, never thought that way. <laughs> Well, I, I, I kept thinking that, and then I, saw, well, I went on to a deep dive and tried to understand what some theologians would say. And of course, on the very far side of liberalism, they would say, oh, well, this is, this is proof. This, Jesus lied, therefore he's not perfect. He's not the, the son of God. And it goes into a wormhole on that. But the, the, the point, is, without getting into that, which isn't really important, is a far much, just a far easier explanation for all of this. And that's that Jesus was saying to his brother something more like this. Hey, I'm not on your timetable, boys. You know, we, we, I don't do the things you say I need to do. I'm on a different time frame. My time has not yet come. I follow the Father. You're telling me what to do, but I do what God tells me to do. It's something similar to that. And then it begins, you begin to understand it. Oh, okay, that makes a whole lot more sense because it says he stayed there. And then after some time, it shows that a few days later, maybe he enters into the feast and begins to preach. 
Now, if he had been telling a lie, some of you are like, why are you even telling me this? I wouldn't have even thought of it. But some of you are thinking this, so I'm going to say it. But if it had been a lie that he was, t- that he was telling, then he would have been called out publicly. It would have been a really big deal. The same brothers who were sarcastic with him would have been like, hey, what's up, liar? You said you weren't coming, right? Some of you have brothers. You know how it works. They didn't do that at all. And so we know that Jesus didn't lie. We know that Jesus is not, as we heard last Sunday, he's not here for us to use, right? He's not just meant to be just useful for us to get us to our next step. That in other words, we ask Jesus to do the things we want him to do on our time frame in our way. But Jesus came on a mission, on a rescue mission, and he came to be glorified, and he came to, to be a sacrifice for all of humanity. And so we see that. And then we go on and we read the rest of the story about how Jesus teaches in the synagogue, and then everybody is baffled, going, how is it that he can teach so good because he hasn't been trained? After that, he, it goes on a little bit further, and, and we'll, we'll read into it. Um, but it says that, that they are... Are, are marveling about what he's saying, and then they're upset at the same time. So they're marveling, they're wowed, and then they're like, we got to kill him. And so this tension that's brewing between those that are, are so for him and, and just mesmerized by him and those that are wanting to take his life out of the threat for the fact that they think he's blaspheming, that they think that there's something wrong with him, and so they want to take his life. And this is where we find Jesus at this big feast. Now, how does this relate to you? I said it before that as we enter into this time, it's for some, it's a time that's like super joyful. For others, it's a time that's super, there's like a lot of anxiety that rises up. But for most of us, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. And we understand something about Jesus here, that Jesus tells us and shows us this model of one who can hold both intention at the same time, right? He can hold intention the reality that he's on a mission, that God has a plan and that he's going to obey God, that he's not going to take on other people's emergencies. He's not going to respond to sarcasm. He's going to walk in a healthy way. Isn't that, well, don't you wish you could just do that all the time? Don't you wish you had a button that would be the don't be defensive button? I wish I had that button, right? You like do so, 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 so good and then somebody super close to you or somebody else says something and then it's, you get defensive and you hear yourself being defensive and you're like, why am I doing this right now? And then you just keep going to try to get yourself out of it. We see something here in Jesus that he responded healthy as a human. Remember, Jesus is teaching us how to be human. And so my, my, my encouragement to you, and, and in the end, I'm going to show a, a few slides um, of things to maybe apply throughout the week that we can come back to this next week, is as you are feeling those tensions rise maybe a little bit, you feel that anxiety creep up a little bit, just remember that Jesus absolutely understands. Remember that Jesus had a family, that he had, he had brothers, and his brothers confronted him, and his brothers made him, like, just nitpicked at him a little bit, were sarcastic towards him, but Jesus responded firmly. He responded lovingly, but most importantly, he responded obediently to the Father. And when you do that, it doesn't ensure that everything's going to be roses and amazing. There was some difficulty that happened as a result. Um, but what you do know in your heart is that you're walking in the way that God's called you to walk in. And when you do that, what do you have? You have this peace that passes understanding. And so that's just a little bit of a snapshot of this. But I wanted to um, take a moment now and, and um, maybe, like, like I said, we'll circle back to this. But I wanted to, to invite um, Haley to come. And before Haley comes up, I just want to um, just share a little bit about who she is. Um, 
Haley, if you watched our, our podcast, is somebody who's sat here in, in our pew for a, like a year now. And um, one of the things that we often say about this place is like, we have some really amazing people that sit out there. You never know who's sitting out there, right? Um, we have those that are pastors, those who lead large ministries, those who um, have big businesses, those who work as first responders, all kinds of amazing people. And every once in a while, you get an insight into um, just who they are. And so I can't wait to, um, to show to introduce Haley to you today. Um, and she's a missionary who's worked for the last seven years in the Middle East and in North Africa. And, and so I'm going to spend some time asking her some questions. But before I do, we're going to um, reset the stage a little bit, and we're going to give you a chance to, to greet one another. And so would you just say hello to each other? Don't get crazy. Don't go, like, you know, all over the place. But um, we're going to come back together in just a moment. And Haley, would you come? And uh, come on up, and, and we'll have this time. everybody. You can do more of this when we're finished, but uh, why don't we all find our seats again? I know. All right. Exactly. Thank you so much. Well, I, um, I began to introduce Haley a little bit, and I'm going to um, ask her a few questions so she can introduce herself, but Haley works with a mission called Ananias House, and we'll hear more about their mission, what they do in the Middle East and in North Africa. Um, but Haley, would you just kind of tell us a little bit about who Haley Wilson is, and um, as I shared with you earlier, who your, your famous grandmother is, because I think we yes, all kind of want to know that as well, too. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. I can't tell. Uh, my famous grandmother is Joan Wilson. <laughs> I'm glad that you applauded. That was the right response. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Southern California, so I actually grew up in a ministry family. My dad also is a pastor. Um, his name is Ken Wilson, if anyone knows um, Joan's children. But uh, yeah, I grew up in the area and grew up, you know, kind of had a growing coming to faith, made a profession to follow Jesus when I was really little. I was about five years old, and I, I don't really know what compelled me, but I said, I want to accept Jesus in my heart. My parents said, okay. So we went out in our living room, and we kneeled on the ground, and we all, you know, prayed, and I followed what my dad said. And um, I do think 
that was kind of the beginning of my journey in knowing him. But it definitely, as I grew, learned a lot more about what that meant um, and grew in my appreciation for just uh, really my own sin. And so then the gift that it was to have it be covered. Uh, yeah, so I had kind of that early coming to faith, but a, a lot, a lot of growing. Um, and then kind of had the opportunity to go to a Christian university. I always went to public uh, school, got to go to a Christian university called Biola. A lot of you have probably heard of it. And that was very integral and in kind of launching me out into some direction when it came to uh, missions and ministry. So, yeah. Yeah. I think as often as the case among believers, we realize like how our, all our paths have been intertwined to a certain degree. And um, uh, Haley's dad was a Bible teacher as well at the high school that I used to teach at. And, um, and I remember just looking at him going, wow, he's got it all together. This guy's awesome. He had his class all sorted out. It was my first year. It took half the year to get everybody just to sit down and listen. The second half went pretty awesome. But I remember the day that your dad said, hey, I used to teach fresh, um, freshman Bible. And he said, here's all my curriculum. Here's all my notes. I was like, no way. It's the Holy Grail. It just was like this thick amount. So he, he really helped me out. And uh, Haley's dad also was instrumental in, in our family. Um, he was a teacher to my wife, Rochelle, in, in her freshman Bible. And um, Rochelle would just say how he was one who helped her to understand healthy male leadership, really to, to really be one who um, was trustworthy and Christ-like. And so we know that you come from an amazing family, and your family, especially your parents, have been a blessing um, to our family. So um, when, when you think about growing up and being around the church and, and making this profession of faith, there came a moment for you and I know you shared some on the podcast, but what was that kind of that moment or what led up to that moment of you really knowing that you didn't just want to be um, just somebody who, I don't know, had this quote unquote normal life, but, but you sensed this like deep calling into international missions. Like what was that like for you? Yeah, I, I did share a little bit on the podcast too. I think there was a mix of different things that happened in my life, but I always dealt with a lot of fear growing up and just had kind of this, uh, like I had a desire to travel, a desire to kind of help people, but um, like I, I hated the trash truck, like it was loud, and like I remember my parents taking me out front and saying like, this is a trash truck, this is what it does, like I was just like, why do we have these guys? <laughs> and, but like little things like that, I just hated that, like just the discomfort that it brought to be out in an environment that was not comfortable and not familiar to you. Um, and then any kind of injustice that I heard about as a child, I remember reading things from like a Voice of the Martyr magazine sitting on someone's kitchen counter and just, like, I, I could tell you the specifics of those stories today because it just, like, stuck with me, and I just hated the reality that so many people were living in, but I didn't know kind of what to do about it. Um, so I had some opportunities in high school to engage a little bit more meaningfully um, in, uh, I think, just compassionate action. God kind of showed me, here's some specific ways that you can engage in your community and in issues around the world that helped kind of launch me out in, in that path. And I, I share about that some on the podcast. And then I uh, had, once I was at Biola, kind of my freshman year, had chosen a major that was missions related. And I was excited about that, but felt kind of a little inadequate. I was in a classroom with kids that were like, you know, either they were missionary kids or they were saying, like, when I was nine years old, God gave me a vision that I was going to be a missionary. And I was like, I was 
that's not my case. Like, that was not what happened with me. Um, but we had this opportunity one day to go out into Skid Row. And they had planned uh, this, I think I'm assuming everybody knows, it's kind of this block of um, a homeless population in Los Angeles. It's, I, I don't know what the population is, but it's large. It's several blocks um, full of just uh, people that have been living there, many of them for uh, the bulk of their lives. And so they sent us out there. We were doing an outreach, and I was pretty nervous because it was the exact opposite of where I ever wanted to be. And yet, I kind of had the desire to see what it was like. And a few day, a few minutes into our time there, they had given us, like, sandwiches. We were supposed to pass them out all day, I think, is what they envisioned. And it was, like, 20 minutes we were out. And they were like, well, you guys have the whole day here, so figure it out. And we were like, what do we do? So we kind of went off into groups and started walking around and talking to people and hearing their stories. And the more that I, you know, engaged with them as people and got to hear who they were and how they got there and why they were there and some of the things that they dealt with and struggled with, it kind of broke down what I think is for a lot of us that barrier of like, it's uncomfortable. You have all kinds of assumptions surrounding why they're there. And that was kind of another point early on in my time um, there that God was helping me see, like, this is how you can engage in compassionate action and really see people and touch them and pray with them. Um, And so that helped kind of open the door for me in, like, I think I can do this, and kind of went, went from there. So, yeah. I love, I love your story because I, I think that most of us can relate to it. I think probably most of us feel like, like you had described some of your classmates at Biola where they, they just were cut from a different cloth, so to speak. They knew from the beginning of their lives they were special in that way. And I think most of us feel like um, I could never do that, whether it's I remember, for myself, I remember thinking, sitting in a church pew, I could never stand up and talk to people publicly, you know. Um, for you, knowing that, like, you were moved deeply with compassion. But uh, what I love about your story is that you had to overcome some of those things, like the trash truck and like, the certain fears and things that, that come up in life. And, um, and I, I see in you the way that God, um, even through your weaknesses, is so strong and has become so strong. And, and um, can you just share a little bit more about that, you know, yeah. about how he, he really helped walk you through um, stepping out in your calling and getting free of some things that maybe held you back? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, well, one aspect, too, was just, you know, of kind of feeling inadequate. I think when you do grow up in the church and you're exposed to faith from a really young age, a lot of times, and it's a grace, like you don't have a dramatic before and after And so oftentimes in conversations with people, I just felt really like how, you know, if you're talking to someone who that's their experience, how can I show them the reality of who God is when maybe I haven't been, um, you know, quote unquote, like kind of changed in the same ways that they would need to see. Um, But I think what I did experience was um, God working on that with me and my fear. So Um, yeah, I had a lot of nightmares when I was a child. I had just a lot. I had a, I didn't, uh, yeah, I think it's okay. Like I, as a child would wrestle with a lot of nightmares. I have a memory of like waking up from a really terrible nightmare as a little kid and hearing a voice audibly say to me, don't say anything. Mm -hmm. And I was struck with just terror. And then I yelled for my dad. And he came right away Good because move. because my Good mom, move. of course, was like, "Ken, Haley's calling." 
And, and that was like, for, I grew up in an environment that was like, we didn't have the TV on all the time. We, we weren't inundated with like a lot of, I don't know, I would say like scary content. I think that there was just a reality to the spiritual realm at work in my life at that time that saw my, you know, Satan saw my fear and said, how can I play on this and increase it um, to keep you in a place of fear? And thankfully, I had parents that were really encouraging and saying, like, uh, God has promised to always be with us. And so there is no point in your life, like, maybe we will not be here, but God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Like, I will always be with you. And so they were quick in those younger years when I was still in their home to point me to, like, yes, you can call for your dad or your mom, but the one that is always there is the Lord. And so that helped me early on kind of experience God in ways as my protector. That was probably one of my first tangible memories of experiencing, like, something in his character and who God is. Um, And I think that helped me a lot as I grew in him to kind of come to the crossroads and say, like, am I going to choose fear or am I going to trust that you will always be with me in this moment? Um, And I think one specific thing that God did for me when I was first looking at going internationally was I had kind of learned a lot of Biola, like learned a lot of great theology of like just missions and unreached people groups and the reality of need around the world. And so I had this kind of growing of like, I think I'm going to go, but like a little begrudgingly because you're like, I kind of want to travel, but at the same time, I kind of want to be comfortable and I don't know what it's going to be like or where I'll go. Um, But I had a growing, burning desire to do it. Uh, And then shortly before I graduated, I remember laying in my dorm room and praying and saying, like, okay, God, like, I'll go if you give me a friend. (laughs) And uh, that was, and then I just was like, I'm sure he'll take care of that. So I just moved forward, got an internship initially with um, an organization called Samaritan's Purse International. I think a lot of you might be familiar with Operation Christmas Child. And the first time that I traveled with them internationally, uh, like on the journey there, I met several people who like in a layover met a missionary who had served in the region for a while, was an older man, kind of gravitated to me. I think God was like, go talk to that scared girl over there. And um, just told me a little bit about what it was going to be like, where I was going. And, and then eventually when I got to, at that time it was an internship in Uganda, when I got to Uganda, just a couple weeks in, made a friend there that wound up being at every place that I went after that. Um, And and my friendships kind of grew out of that. I grew a really great community of people that are some of my my best friends today. So um, I think that was one tangible way that God helped meet me and kind of give me that that courage. Um, Yeah. That's awesome. It seems just like God, doesn't it, to... um, if you knew that at some point in your life that the struggle was fear, then to not only call you into international missions, but place you in locations in the world that most of us would go, oh, I'd never want to go there, mm-hmm. right? Because of the fears of things surrounding, whether it's war, conflict, um, whatever else. And so can you just give us a little bit of idea of what, what you've been up to the last seven years um, in your work in the Middle East, some in East Africa, but as well just in, uh, in, in regions that would be considered dangerous and how the Lord's given you peace to be there. That's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, and I had one more thought on the previous question. No, you can't do that. You have to go. I'm it's just kidding. too late. I'm just kidding. Well, I'll go. yeah, <laughs> it's over. Um, yeah, I think something that God has really been, I, I'm, I guess, maybe convicting me of and encouraging me toward in probably the last two years is just trying to be specific in like the scripture that I memorize, and mm. so like really having that in the toolbox, like I'm in a moment where I feel afraid and this feeling, and I think that can apply to so many things, whether, whatever the feeling is. Um, but it feels true. Like it feels like the whole truth when you're really afraid that feels like the whole truth. And it's not, I mean, it's a, can be a valid feeling, but it's not the reality of life under like the sovereignty and goodness of God. And so just having that, you know, like fear not for I am with you. Do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Like saying it out loud, it's a response. And I think that's something that has been like a faith kind of growing in my faith and my walk with him encouraged to say, like, if I deal with this specific thing and there's more, it's not just that, of course, yeah. <laughs> then like, how do I pull something out that speaks to that in his word? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so good. that's one thought. Yeah. And then you said, tell about, us what. Yeah. Just about the last two. Yeah. What you've been up to in your, in your work yeah. internationally. So I, like I said, got an internship with Samaritan's Purse International. That was shortly after, that was four days actually after I graduated, I was on a plane. Um, and interned with them initially in their headquarters and then did an internship with them in Uganda um, and did a little bit to help them. There's a lot of different uh, sectors that you can work in. You could be building houses. You could be providing food assistance. You could be, um, you know, doing something in education. And in all of those programs for Christian organizations, they want to say, if it's possible, depending on how we're funded, how can we integrate um, biblical truth and principles here? So helped them look at some ways to do that. Um, And then I got uh, my first full-time job with them in Greece, kind of during the peak of the European refugee crisis. Um, And that was just initially I went with like a carry-on and I thought I was going to be there for a month and I wound up being there for about a year and a half. Uh, And that was a really, I had previously in college kind of gotten interested in like just people groups, especially out of the Middle East and North Africa, like out of the Muslim world, being pushed across borders into um, the West and what that meant and how the church could respond. And I kind of had these like grand ideas of like, this is how you can bring the gospel to them because they're now in their, you know, your backyard, which is true, but you know, it's just like a theory. But when I went to Greece, um, I saw it like firsthand. The church there is about, it's primarily Greek Orthodox but there's 2% evangelical church at that time anyway. It was about 2016. Um, And they just, like, gave money out of their own pocket, time away from their own jobs, um, time away from their family. Like, they would take time out of all those things to just respond and take in refugees. I mean, they had refugees that lived with them. They would open their doors, you know, in the morning of the church, and refugees would come in, like, not not just on a Sunday, like, any day, office hours. They're coming in and asking for help. And so they just found ways to be kind of the ones to receive them and, and to give that time, and it opened up uh, the door for the gospel to be shared. I remember one... Greek 
pastor, I don't think he was a pastor, I think he was just a, a member. Um, he was giving people rides to appointments uh, for like their, the asylum process of becoming a refugee and, and all that. And there was, he would always keep a Bible in the back seat of the kind of that pocket on your, on your seats. And usually people would be sitting in the back and he would just put it there just, you know, just conversation starter. And there was one man who he drove several times. They started having conversations and he had an opportunity to share the full gospel with him. And that man had come, uh, I think he had been either from Afghanistan or Syria. I can't remember which. And he said, why has no one told me this before? Like, why has no one told me? And the, the Greek believer didn't really know what to say. And before he could continue, the, the man said, I, now I know why God has allowed this to happen in our lives and, and to be pushed out of my home was so that I could meet you and you could tell me, like, the gospel, who Jesus is. And he became a believer. And that was, like, one story in one car for one man of tens of thousands of refugees that were coming through Europe at that time. Um, and, you know, that was the church. Like, that was our brothers and sisters in that part of the world, what they did in that moment. So that was a very cool kind of formative um, time for me and kind of lit the fire for me to want to go back to, the, to see kind of on the front end what it was like in the Middle East. Um, and so I took... I was there for about a year and a half, like I said, in Greece, and then had kind of a year segue to the Eastern Caribbean where I had another job after Hurricane Maria hit that part of the world. But it was a good, felt like a kind of random thing, but it was a great opportunity for me to gain some of the job skills that I needed to eventually take, apply and accept um, a position in northern Iraq. Um, And so I got to be there for about four years uh, from 2019 until the end of 2022. Um, and or beginning of 2023, and it was just, yeah, it was a great opportunity. I got to lead two community centers. One was in the city of Mosul, and one was in a village area, and um, these places were, like, occupied by Islamic State. A lot of people, if you were not a Muslim, you were driven out um, and the Muslims that stayed in those areas, if a lot of them joined, um, a lot of them also just stayed in their homes and tried to keep to themselves and faced a lot of heavy persecution. And then just like physically, the places were very destroyed. Um, and so when eventually Islamic State was being rooted out of those areas, they just kind of had a total burn mentality of, we'll just destroy it on our way out. Um, but I got to go and live in a Christian town that had been occupied by them and destroyed by them, but was in the process of being rebuilt. So I got to be there when, like, the people were returning and they were rebuilding their homes and reopening businesses um, and just kind of restarting life there. And, um, yeah, that was an amazing opportunity to kind of see believers in that moment, how they responded and, and got to have just friends that I made there that were an incredible witness of what it looked like to bring the gospel um, even to your enemies in the wake of that. So, yeah. You told a really cool story. And I remember um, your grandma would share with us updates and we were praying for you at times, you know, praying for your safety. And I know you had gone through some health issues and things like that. I remember on this side of the the world praying for you. But um, for those of us that are 
on this side of the world, where the only thing we know of the Middle East is what we see on various news networks and a, a worldview that's been shaped around a, one solo perspective that we could have. And, um, and I, I know that that part of the world can be uh, deeply confusing uh, and, and complicated in the nuances of culture and how you bring the gospel and all the things that, um, that we can tend to oversimplify, you know. And, um, and I, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions in that regard, but the first, the first question that I had for you, and, and I re- you, you had told me this story um, when we sat down and talked, but there was like a really amazing moment that happened as we, uh, as the United States was pulling out all the, um, the military might and everybody was leaving and people were being um, sent to different locations, displaced, refugee crisis happening and so forth. And you were, um, you were there to see the beginnings of that. And you had an interaction with the, the U.S. military and, and it was a really positive one. Um, and I just wanted to, if, if you could share a little bit of that story because yeah. that was just so in- encouraging. Yeah, um, so I had the opportunity when I was living in Iraq, Samaritan's Purse did a, it's like a res- emergency response when the U.S. was pulling out of Afghanistan and the Taliban was taking over. And so they sent a few of us who were already in the region to some of the Gulf countries because that's where um, Afghans were being put on planes out of Afghanistan and then they would land somewhere usually in the Gulf and they would try to sort who was on the plane just because it was so chaotic. Um, There's a lot of reasons for it, but they, they wanted the opportunity to be able to do that. So um, they sent us to a, a U.S. military base that was there, and um, we got to work alongside the military in responding and just providing Samaritan's percent, um, like a plane of just not uh, a lot of different supplies that they would need. And so we would kind of supply that alongside them. But one of the days I was there, I was walking around the hangar with one of their military chaplains, and he was a believer. He was a really neat guy. And these hangars were like huge plane, airplane hangars. It's full of literally thousands of people crammed in every corner. It's really, really hot. And I mean, it smells. There's no airflow. Like people are uncomfortable. They're getting agitated. And many of them didn't know you know, how long they were going to be there. They had come through very harrowing experiences escaping um, Afghanistan. And then uh, there was just a lot of confusion, a lot, a lot of confusion. And so the military was doing an incredible job of trying to make them as comfortable as they could and organize things and keep families together. A lot of families were getting separated in the chaos. Um, And so there was one day that they were distributing out, and as I was walking around with this chaplain, they were distributing food and clothes and some different things. And so there was a line for women, I think it was women's clothing, and they were all just standing in this line. And um, one of my colleagues and my friends was there as well. She actually had experience as a missionary in Afghanistan, and so she spoke Dari. She was saying little things to the women who were waiting and just kind of encouraging and chatting with them. And the chaplain heard her and said, do you speak the language? And she said, I mean, yeah, I'm a little rusty, but... And so he said, okay, translate what I say. So he gathered women around. He just said, come, come. And so they kind of gathered around in this line. And um, he said, how many of you here have heard of Jesus? And there was one woman who raised her hand and no one else. And uh, he said, okay. And so he shared the whole 
gospel with them, told them who Jesus was. And my friend, I mean, she had served for so long in that context, she knew what it meant to be able to so freely share the gospel with a group of Afghan, uh, especially women. Um, And I thought in that moment, like, this is so chaotic, and there's so much about this decision that's controversial on every side, Um, but God is using it to reveal himself, and they will only go from here forward into places where they will have more access to the gospel and more opportunity to receive it. Um, And so that was an incredible kind of window into what he was doing in that moment, even though it felt very tragic and chaotic and messy um, to us. So, yeah. I was also thinking um, how much I value your perspective because mine is somewhat limited. I've seen that part of the world firsthand in a very small uh, measure where you've actually lived among people. And um, I know that for all of us as believers, God has a way of tenderizing our hearts towards the things that are important to him. And I also know that, you know, it can be, like I was saying about um, these holiday times, like we hold two things in tension. You know, we hold one thing in tension that we're experiencing um, a beautiful place to live with freedoms and and resources and and so forth. And so sometimes it's difficult to have a a perspective in God's heart for the refugee, for um, uh, this region of the world um, that, again, for us, we're, we only have what we have, our perspective. Could you give us like a missionary's perspective? Could you give us a perspective of somebody who for four years lived among refugees? And um, I know that that's probably a really big question that we could spend a lot of time on, but I don't know. Could you just kind of give us your heart a little bit, maybe Jesus' heart for how, mm-hmm. how we ought to see the refugee? Yeah, I think um, so maybe some facts to kind of frame Things I think uh, the UN said this year in the world there's like 36.4 million refugees. And I don't know how many of those are from the Middle East and North Africa, but I know that 52% come from three countries, which is Syria and Afghanistan, and then the third is Ukraine. So just, you know, Syria and Afghanistan alone, that's a huge population of refugees. Those are people that have been driven out of their homes across a border. And then in the Middle East and North Africa, there's about 16 million uh, that are displaced. So they're not necessarily in another country, but they're internally displaced people. So they're somewhere outside of their hometown, but maybe still in the country. And the majority of the reason for that displacement or becoming a refugee is because of some kind of armed conflict. Um, And then with that, we know that this year we had, you know, there was an earthquake in Turkey and Morocco. um, So there's significant disasters that have happened in that part of the world, too. Um, And so from that, like, humanitarian side, it's just this massive, endless need that if no human effort can kind of, it's just a drop in the ocean, any effort that we do. Um, But from kind of like a missiology side, it's the heart of what they call like the 1040 window. So the part of the world that it's like a specific longitude and latitude, right, that is um, most unreached. And so it's interesting when you kind of overlap those things of like it's a really unreached part of the world, historically one of the most difficult to reach with the gospel um, for various reasons, and 
yet more than ever before, those people are being driven out of that area into places, sometimes still in, in the 1040 window, but sometimes they're in a country that is, has a lot more religious freedom. Um, so I think that's like, it's, it's interesting. And then um, missiologists have, I don't know how they, so big caveat, I don't know how they come up with this, but um, what they have said is they think that there are three times more Muslims coming to faith in Christ in the last two decades than since the founding of Islam. Um, and I think, like, I know that God's heart grieves over the horrors of what is happening in that part of the world. And then I also know that he's capable of redeeming everything. We may see some of that this side of heaven, and then a lot of it probably not. But he seems to be using these types of events to, one, put people into places where maybe they can more readily hear him if they've had to leave their home and they're in a new place. I mean, even here in Southern California, we have one of the largest Arabic-speaking populations in the U.S., um, and those are people that are literally in our backyard now that we can go and meet them and share the gospel with them. And then for his church that's in that part of the world, like, the way... There's no benefit to being a lukewarm Christian. Like, you're either in or you're out because of the amount of suffering and persecution that you will face if you're really a Jesus follower. And so I think he's also used kind of those circumstances to allow the church to, again, shine in that moment of really being the source of hope, um, the, the primary place that people can come to look to for uh, yeah, I think mainly for hope. But if you talk to a lot of pastors in that part of the world and leaders, like there is no off time. They have a home that is constantly inundated with needs, even though they're living in need themselves. Not just, um, I mean, certainly economically and not having enough food at times, depending on where they are. And then just like that, that need for just support and being able to talk through things and loss be able to process loss. And that's what, you know, the church there is really this like beacon of, of light, I think for people, um, in new ways because of the extreme circumstances and the hardship that they're living under. Um, yeah, I think those are a couple of things that, that I think of. There's no doubt that God grieves over what's happening there. And at the same time, um, there's like, uh, I studied Habakkuk earlier this year And there's this moment where he says, like, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And, like, the when Habakkuk is writing, he's, like, it's extreme. Like, they're in Israel at that time. Horrific things are happening. Injustice. People are not living according to the covenant. And then, like, basically God is saying, I'm going to enact, you know, I'll bring justice to this situation, but it's going to be through this occupying people group um, out of Babylon. And so, I mean, the facts of the situation feel like there is no way that anything good can be happening right now. And his message to him is like, I'm at work in ways that you cannot see, but you would be astounded if you knew the reality of what I was doing in this moment. And I think that oftentimes, like, when you're looking at how tumultuous things are in that part of the world and seeing the grief that a lot of our brothers and sisters are having to endure, like, that 
though, seems to be in the heart of God to say, like, I'm in complete control and I'm doing things that you could not believe. Amen. yeah. I love that perspective because if I'm sure we can all relate when we think of and you begin to hear some of these statistics and you think of world events, doesn't it just get overwhelming? You think like, you know, and you sit around maybe or you can talk about a social issue like homelessness or whatever and everybody sits around and tries to come up with solutions. Right. And, and um, But I love your perspective as a missionary. I think it's important for us to hear the, the perspective is that of who God is. Who God is in the midst of um, the chaos of the world that he sits enthroned and that he has the ability to redeem things. And I like what you said too, that some of it will see this side of eternity and most of it will see beyond. But our, our role is to be faithful in the midst of it. And instead of so often, I think what we can all, um, and myself included, be somewhat guilty of is realizing if I do something, it's just a drop in the bucket, what change would it make? And can't you see how the enemy would use that as the very tactic to get a church to be, uh, a church with a capital C, like the body of Christ, to be um, ones that would do nothing. Because what would my little uh, bit do? But to realize that, um, that we, are, we are given that mandate to bring the good news, whether it's through supporting missionaries, through um, going ourselves, through prayer, but most of all, having a perspective of who God is in the midst of the chaos of the right. world, not camping out in the chaos. So, yeah, I really love your perspective. Um, I, I know our time is running out, I, but I wanted to um, ask you a little bit about your, your season now. Uh, you know, you've had a time to come back and kind of recuperate a little bit. And, um, and I, I know from our conversation that you've um, started with an organization called Ananias House. And your role there is, is field director and com- and co- or field manager, communication director. Yeah, Am I making up a job for you? It's too long of a title. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. It sounded like when I, project. When, when I looked at your title, it sounded to me like the person who gave it to you is like, Haley's awesome. Let's give her a title so big that's like, just do everything. So something yeah, like that. They, when I saw my contract, I was like, that's going to be a little hard to move. So it's just, you know, whatever you want to call me. It's officially field <laughs> project <laughs> and communications manager. Field project and communications manager. And tell us... We can shorten it. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. But what, what are you going to do? What, what's this next season look like for you? Yeah, so now I've started working for Ananias House. They're a small missions organization founded by a Syrian believer that has the heart to kind of bridge the gap between the church in the Middle East and North Africa and the the U.S., the church in the U.S., through a number of not just financial, but certainly that, but just providing resources, prayer support, all kinds of things. And so um, my job will kind of be to be the arm of the organization in the region. So I'll hope to move back the beginning of next year. Probably it's looking like March because the goal is for me to be in Lebanon and um, there's a little bit of conflict going on over there. So we're, we're waiting to see how that shakes out. If not there, then hopefully somewhere else um, close by, but still effective for the organization. But in the meantime, I can do a lot remotely. So part of my role is to gather stories from the field, just of believers that they're supporting. What is life like for them? What are some of the ways that they need support to be able to convey that to like a U.S. church audience? Um, and then some of what I'm doing is helping with specific projects. One of the things they do is pastoral leader, leader training. Because of conflict in the area, it's kind of created a vacuum for leadership. And so they have a program that raises up new leaders by taking people from the West who are, you know, lay leaders 
leaders or pastors, um, and they provide training multiple times a year. It's kind of like bringing a mobile seminary to that part of the world um, for for uh, men in that area, and they also have women's leadership training too. Um, and so part of what I'll do is to help kind of organize some of those nuts and bolts and whatever other projects that they give me. So it's going to be an adventure. Anyone's welcome to come and visit me in Lebanon. But let me find a place to live yet before. But it's going to be great, though, whatever it is. So you should come. Yeah. yeah. Right on. Thank you, Haley. Uh, how come you're laughing about visiting her in Lebanon? I'm serious, guys. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, I, I can just say you, you are a gift to that organization. And um, part of the reason that I wanted to have you come and share your heart and, and to, you know, ask you some of these questions is to introduce you a little more deeply to the congregation. And we as a church are going to be behind Haley and her mission work and supporting financially and prayerfully. Um, but I also wanted to extend that invitation to each one of you. I think part of the, the practical side of working in missions is um, you either come up with your own financial support or it's a half kind of thing. And so she's been given a half salary and has some goals to be able to, to live. And so if you're interested in either um, prayer support or financial support, you can dialogue with um, Haley directly or, or talk to us and we can put you in contact. But I, I would just say um, how proud we are to be on your team, like literally to be in your, in your corner. It's, it's a, it is our privilege. And um, I'm, I'm really, I don't know how, how to say it without sounding like almost like patronizing, so it's not my intent, but just so proud of who you are and, um, and your yeses, what they've meant. And I think that in, in reflecting on the Christmas story and um, reflecting on, on even some of the stuff that I had shared earlier in, in starting this message and how relevant Jesus' life is to us, but in the, the message of John is that he came to save the whole world. And we get to be a part of that. And, um, and it all started for Jesus uh, with his mom's yes. Right? When the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, I'm going to do this crazy thing. Right? It's beyond what you can even imagine. And, and Mary said yes. And she became this vessel, you know, of God's presence. And, and so how we all get to be that as well. And how you are, are, are modeling that so well for us, Haley. So thank you. Um, I have one last question because I think it's so important. Because in, in, in you gave reference to the conflict that's happening very near to Lebanon in Israel between Israel and Palestine. And we watch this on the news. I think it's the 66th day of this war. And, um, and so many, um, even in, in our culture here, the perspectives of the different sides of the war and, and um, how are you praying? How, are, how could you kind of give us your insight in how to be praying? Um, you know, again, we don't want to, I, 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 it's so big to talk about. We know it's a war that happened because it was provoked, but we know that there is um, tension and we feel it in our culture and can't even imagine what's being felt there. How are you praying? How can we be praying for Israel? How can we be praying uh, for Palestine? Yeah, I think, um, like you said, it's really complicated. And I think that's one thing that I keep coming back to in discussions just with friends and family of, like, yeah. it's just really complicated. And, um, yeah, uh, there have definitely been some specific things that have caught my attention throughout that I have prayed for. And I think there's probably been the same here of just you hear something on the news and you pray, let me pray for that hostage or the number of children that have died in this conflict is in the thousands um, 
And so there's specific things there that I've been praying for. I think the biggest thing, because it is so complex, I wish I was like, you know, this is the exact, what I've really found myself mostly asking for is like God's perspective. So like as I'm listening to something or um, like I volunteer with another organization here that works with refugees here and a lot of them are pro-Palestine. They have people, they have family members right now that are there and, um, so every day you're coming, or not every day, every time you're with them, they're talking about some of the losses that they're experiencing. And I think just, I really want God's perspective. You know, it's such a biblically significant place. Um, and, and then the lives that are being just impacted are the tens of thousands of people. And so that's kind of the main thing that I've come back to again and again, because it's hard to clearly say this is the exact way. I think it's, it's a hard one. So it is a hard one. And and I think that prayer for God's perspective is perfect. And I think that's um, how we can sort of wrap this time up and, and pray for you and maybe ask you to pray for us. And, um, I, I go back to what we started with in John 7, that that's exactly what Jesus was about when he was confronted with sarcasm from his family. He was about God's perspective. And God's perspective is sometimes, most of the time, so much different than the perspective of everybody else around us. Have you, have you experienced that? that? That's why it's so much easier just to go with the flow, baby. You know, just, bah, where are we going? But, but to, to take the time, especially in, in this moment in our history, and especially in this season, um, to, to seek him and to know that he'll be found and to know that God has a heart um, that is, is for the world. Amen? Amen. Well, um, Haley, I want to pray for you, and then um, you pray for us, and um, then we'll dismiss this thing because... Um, it's time, you know. You, if you go past 11, I have a clock right there. If you go, it's like 11:34, and if you get to like 11:37, it just gets dangerous in here. So, but um, yeah, <laughs> Jesus, I just want to thank you for um, being able to do something a little different this morning. But so worthwhile to hear your heart, Lord. Listen to your word. To open our our hearts to your heart. That's our desire. Uh, you modeled it for us in your word and saying that even to your own family, my time hasn't come. But when, when your time came to go, you went. And, and whatever the decisions that we're making in this moment and whatever things we're holding, we have two hands out. One's holding some tense stuff and the other's holding some really joyful things in, in a moment like Christmas season. Uh, we give it all to you and in exchange for um, your heart, your perspective, Lord, your ways. Show us, God, in, in all of it, Lord, in the grand scheme of things, in the, in the events of the world, in the wars of the world, God, in the tensions of our heart. We just come to you and we submit ourselves to you. It's what we get to do every Sunday when we're together, to honor and glorify you and to lay down our rights and to listen for your heart and to walk in obedience to your word and to welcome the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. God, I thank you for Haley's story that is so real, Lord, that you um, took her through a season of refinement and 
freed her and healed her of some things and, and, and are using her even in, in areas where she sometimes feels weak, you have become so strong. And so we thank you for her vulnerability, her willingness to share her story. And we are in her corner, God. And I know that you are for her, God, because you love her. She's your daughter. And I pray you would continue to lead and guide her. Lord, you would provide all that she needs and you would use her unique to the gift and the calling that you've placed upon her life. So we bless her. And we honor you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, Father, I just thank you so much, Lord, uh, for for Bridge Community Church, God, just for the the picture that the church is of your family, of what it means to be a unified family um, from all different places and backgrounds, and um, just what an example that is to the community around us, Lord. And pray that you would just continue to strengthen them and the days ahead as things continue to be tumultuous in the place that we live and around the world, God, that this church would just be an incredible light, um, that they would be just marked by um, a spirit-driven wisdom, that you would just continue to weld them together with love, um, God, that you would continue to just uh, call specific people in the congregation to to bold work in your name, whatever that looks like, God, maybe internationally, but maybe right here somewhere, God, maybe it's um, just a a new perspective that they bring to their families and some hardship there. Um, God, I pray that you would just, yeah, continue to help us in what can feel like a lot of our work is just, like we've said, a drop in the ocean, but it's really, for a believer, a foreshadowing of a reality that's to come, that there will be a day truly when when all heartache, when all suffering, when all conflict, um, God has has completely ceased, and so that we would be able to live with a perspective of, it's not just kind of a skin-deep optimism, it's a it's living in the reality of what it's like to be a part of the kingdom and and just living with an expectant hope that that will one day be the the reality of everything that we know and and are about and what we see in the world around us and um, I pray that that would just be um, the place that that bridge can live in of just a a little piece of the kingdom um, that is a foreshadowing of what's to come and and the details of their lives, that that would just be the way that they're living and, and the light that they're being to the people that are in each of their spheres of influence. Um, Father, we thank you so much for this time. Just, um, yeah, we thank you for the God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Can we thank uh, Haley for... I wanted to encourage you if you if you'd like just to come and, and meet Haley if you haven't had the privilege of already doing that and um, and she can give you more information on what it looks like to, to be a part of her team and support. So yeah, so God bless you and have a, a wonderful week. And next week we'll talk more about John chapter seven. All right, Amen. Bless you. You can be dismissed. <laughs>